0: please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. I think one of the universal lines of any coach is something along the lines of, don't read the headlines, boys, or don't read the news clippings. Maybe that's news clippings. We don't get those much anymore. Careful what you're reading, guys, because the reality is sometimes when a team will win a game, They start to think a lot about themselves and others around the team might think a whole lot about them and write some really cool things about them. But the coach sometimes knows better. He in fact knows the teams that his team has been playing, That those teams aren't necessarily very good. He knows the mistakes that are being made by his team even if the news reporters and others can't see them. He knows that his team will be much more vulnerable should they come up against stiffer competition. We're going to see something similar to that when we look at chapter 3 today, at least with the church in Sardis. My plan is to make our way through two of these churches the church in Sardis and the church in Philadelphia this morning, so we're going to have to move fairly quick. Putting them together, I think the message for you and for me is possibly wake up and hold fast. Let's watch verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now, if If you're new today, maybe you're new to the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is sending specific messages to seven different churches that the entire letter of Revelation was written to. We've seen a handful of those to the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now to the church in Sardis. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. We noted back when we looked at chapter one that the seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven used symbolically to speak of fullness and perfection. So Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the spirit of God. And the seven stars, those were the, the angels or the messengers of the churches. Jesus is full of the Spirit and is in charge of the churches. And he says this, I know your deeds. Now usually we've, we've seen that generally when Jesus says that, he's about to begin to recount some good things about the church. Not so with this church in Sardis. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Yikes. You have a name, you have a reputation, Church of Sardis, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, I think Jesus is speaking with a little bit of hyperbole when he says that they are dead, There in verse 2, he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. And down there in verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, I think Jesus is speaking with a bit of hyperbole when he says, you have a name, a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead it appears he means you're real close. They had lots of activity maybe, maybe they were big, maybe they weren't so big, but they were a church in name only? Nominal church. What does nominal mean? It comes from the nomos name. They were a church almost in name only. They had a reputation. They were alive. But in fact, according to Jesus, they were almost dead. This can happen, can't it? For a church to think itself to be about God's business. Again, maybe it is a big church. Maybe it's fancy in some ways. Maybe it's quite busy. But if Jesus Christ takes the closer look, they are not about the glory of God. They are not proclaiming the gospel of God. They are not preaching and teaching the Word of God. They are not encouraging the pursuit of holiness among the people. They are not together encouraging, challenging, and if you will, even practicing discipline with one another as we encourage each other to be faithful to God's Word and and to be faithful in obeying Him. They might be big, they might be happening, they might be cool, they might be fancy, and they might be busy. But if they don't have those foundational things of a church committed to the glory of God and the preaching faithfully of the gospel and the teaching of his word and the pursuit of holiness together and the like, it seems to me that Jesus might say, you have a name, you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are on the verge of death. So, Redeemer, let's keep up those sorts of things. Is Redeemer Community Church a perfect church? Not at all. But I sure hope and trust that Jesus would say of us that indeed you are alive. I'm all about big. I pray. I'd honestly hope that we get even bigger, that we see more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We see people all over our city who maybe are unchurched, don't have a church home, that more and more of them would, would come in here and we pack this place out. I'm all for big. I'm all for fancy. I'd love for us to even be fancier, you know? I'm all for that kind of stuff that we could take what we have and make it even better. I'm all for busy. Let's be more and more busy than ever, with the sorts of things we're meant to be busy about. May God use Redeemer Community Church in a host of wonderful, servant-hearted, loving acts towards one another and our city and even the world. Let's be bigger and fancier and busier than ever. If all of that is built upon The gospel of God and the glory of God, the word of God, the people of God, the mission of God. You all know my a bit of my story. Um, last year, you know, I was having some trouble swallowing and, and, you know, other than that, I was a picture of health. I used to joke that I used to go in to get my annual physical and I was just hoping that one of my doctors would look at me and say, Hey, you need to lose 30 pounds now. But every time I would go get a physical, my doctor would say, Hey, man, whatever you're doing, keep it up. Even though I knew I was 30 pounds too heavy. So I was a picture of help, but I was having trouble swallowing, and I thought, You know what? It's stress. It's got to be stress. I'm healthy, I'm alive. They'll go in, they'll take a look, oh yeah, it's stress, his esophagus is strictured up, we'll just, we'll just stretch it out a little bit and he'll be off and running. And of course, you know my story, they went in and I was not a picture of health. I was not as strong as I thought I was. There was a tumor in my esophagus. They had a name, they had a reputation that they were alive, but they were very, very close to death, and that's not a good thing. Jesus warned them, down at the end of verse 3, that if they don't wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come to you. The image of coming like a thief is used in the New Testament to describe the second coming of Jesus. Some wonder, though, in the context of these letters, if it's, Jesus coming, if you will, in history, unexpectedly to this church, to that threat that he, to the church of Ephesus, to remove their lampstand. You got a name, you got a reputation that you're alive but you're dead, and I'm going to come like a thief and remove your lampstand. I'll no longer regard you as one of mine and your light for the gospel of Jesus in your place will no longer shine could be that could be that with a view towards even the second coming of judgment second coming of Christ and the judgment that comes with it so Jesus says to them wake up he says it twice verse 2 wake up There in verse 3, therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief. This is good news again, right? Here's a church that's in a bad place. But here's Jesus coming to them, speaking to them, calling to them, wooing to them to come back to him. Meant to say it earlier, say it now, just as there can be a nominal church, there can be nominal Christians as well, huh? Christian in name only. Maybe they would call themselves a Christian, claim to be a follower of Jesus, but the reality being that they never bent their knee to Jesus Christ. Maybe, as I've said before, maybe they've tipped their hat. Maybe they said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm, uh, I'm cool with Jesus. Maybe they even, you know, they, they go to church, but, but, but maybe it's for social things. You know, it'd be good for the kids. But there's no robust spiritual life in them. I, again, love the way Nancy Guthrie says, they were spiritually sleepy, talking about the Sardidians, apathetic. When they heard the word preached, their minds were elsewhere. It didn't penetrate. They were spiritually weak. Whenever they felt any urge to vigorously pursue life in Christ by meditating on or memorizing scripture, getting up early to pray, sharing Christ with their pagan neighbor, or fighting that sin that they give into over and over again, they decided to lie down until the urge passed. They had a loss of appetite, no hunger for God's word, no desire to learn anything new or to rigorously apply what they already understood quite clearly. Jesus, the spiritual doctor, gave Sardis both the diagnosis and the treatment the church needed. So again, back to verse 2. Wake up strengthen the things that remain which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Again, this is wonderful. This is Jesus coming to them and and calling them to repentance. And here, I think, is what waking up could look like or can be the fuel to waking up if you and I find ourselves more apathetic to the things of God than we want to be comfortable with. Remember... What you have received and heard and keep it and repent. What is it that they had received and heard? It was the gospel. It seems to me and to others that Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis, to, to the apathetic believers at Sardis who needed to wake up, well, how do I do that? You remember what you received and heard. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. It's the gospel that can kindle our hearts afresh for love for Christ, His word, his people, his cause. Remember the gospel. They had heard it. Someone along the way had come there to Sardis and had proclaimed the good news. The good news. That God, through the perfect life of his son and his substitutionary death upon the cross... And his bodily resurrection from the dead. That through him, sinners like they were could be forgiven. And could be reconciled to God. And could be adopted into his family. And could be given the very presence of God through his spirit. Could be united to Jesus Christ and empowered for a new kind of life. They heard that message. Apparently they had believed it, they'd received it, and yet for whatever reason they had begun to grow apathetic and they're called upon to wake up, they're called upon to to remember that amazing message of the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God through Jesus Christ. Remember what you've heard, received, and keep it. Cling to it. Obey it. And repent. The path you're on now, apathetic Christian, turn from it. And remember Christ. And and keep it. Trust him, obey him, cling to him. And there's promise in this. At least, well, here it is down in verse 5. Verse 4. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there are some... Here in Sardis, who have remained faithful to Jesus, the spiritual apathy had not taken over in their life. They they were not in need of of waking up. And Jesus says, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That's that's a promise of of the coming kingdom. They will be with Jesus, forgiven, cleansed. And in verse 5, others could join him. Could join them. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. That this promise is available even to those who have fallen into the apathy. If they would wake up, if they would remember, if they would cling to Christ, they too will be clothed in white garments. I will not erase their name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just to camp on that last one. Can you imagine? Father, Mitch is one of ours. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Just like All of these messages to the churches, the promise is all related to the age to come and the promise of eternal life. We will be with Jesus. Our names will in no way be taken out of the book of life. We'll come to more of that later in the book of Revelation. And Jesus will confess our name before his father and before the holy angels. Redeemer, before we press on to the next church, let's just remind ourselves, no matter if we find ourselves in apathy or say it like this, where we are on the apathetic scale if we're on it. The remedy for you and for me is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to remember what we have received and heard. It's to ponder again the mercy of God. In Jesus Christ. I would encourage you and myself, if you will, to memorize the gospel. What I mean by that is memorize some verses that really get at the at the message of the gospel. Memorize John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's a lot to, having memorized that verse, a lot to ponder in that verse. That is glorious and can warm our hearts. Memorize 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 20, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God took his holy son and God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God in him. How wonderful. Memorize a verse like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. I'm saved by grace. I'm saved. It means I must have been in trouble. My sins had separated me from God and, and my works didn't fix me. It was the grace of God that fixed me through faith in Jesus Christ. Memorize the gospel. Pray the gospel. Just thank God for the blessing of forgiveness, of being a part of his family, the blessing of eternal life. Thank him for that. Thanking him that it comes through Jesus Christ. Acknowledging that Christ's work on the cross is what makes your prayer even possible. Sing the gospel. Y'all know I love to sing great songs. Learn a few. You don't have to learn a bunch, but just learn a few. And I'm going to say especially those that really recount the gospel goodness and the grace and the mercy of God towards us. Another one is maybe review gospel changes in your own life. That's one way to warm your heart is to look back on who you were and how God through his son Jesus Christ has changed you. And study the gospel. The the gospel is like a multifaceted diamond, right? I mean, you just keep on turning the thing and it just keeps on giving forth new light. Study it in the scriptures and study it through good books that help us. Let's remember what we have received and heard so that if we find ourselves spiritual apathy, we might wake up. Well, secondly, let's hold fast. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. I don't have time for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I was teaching at the Cannecook Institute this past week. I get to go up there uh, twice a year and work with, teach a a bunch of folks just out of college. So they're young men, young women, and I get to teach them over you the Bible, and then I go back and teach them the book of Acts. A lot of fun. I forget what we were talking about this week, but we got to talking about Jesus and his authority. We're talking about the Gospel of John. And his great I am statements in the Gospel of John. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, Jesus has a number of powerful authoritative statements about himself. I am the light of the world. I am the bread which has come down from heaven. I am the resurrection and the life. And by saying I am, he's linking back to Exodus chapter 3 when God called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses said, if the people say to me, who sent you, what do I say? And God said, you tell them I am sent you. So by these I am statements, Jesus is connecting himself in many ways saying, I am Yahweh of the Old Testament, I'm God. And, And then he's telling us more about who he is. The light of the world, the good shepherd. And I made the point to those students and reminded of it again here. Can you imagine if I walked up here on a Sunday morning and said to you all, with all legit, like a minute, I'm the light of the world, I'm the resurrection and the dead. He who believes in me, though he die, will live forevermore. I'm the bread which came down out of heaven. Like, if you're in relationship with me, I will give you spiritual sustenance throughout your life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Can you imagine? Y'all would flee. And rightfully so. We don't flee Jesus, do we? Who said all of those things and more. Here he says, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. He probably means by that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise of the one who would sit upon David's throne forevermore. He's the Messiah, and he has the keys of the Messiah, the authority of God's appointed Son, Messiah, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He's absolutely sovereign. He does what he does, and no one thwarts his plans. Well, I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. I'd love to meet this little church in Philadelphia. I say little because most believe that that's maybe what he means here when he says because you have a little power. Maybe compared to these other churches, they were just a little group of folk maybe didn't have any social clout folks within their church family. They, nobody was rich, nobody was influential, nobody was powerful. They were just a little, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Just, just a little church here. And yet, you've kept my word. You've not denied My name. They've stayed faithful to Jesus even when it was really hard. He says in verse 9, gives us a little bit of the context that they were living in. Uh, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and I will make them know that I've loved you. Apparently, just like in Smyrna, there was a synagogue of Jews who probably were given a little bit of civic privilege, but then you had this this small band of Christians, some of them Jews, others of them Gentiles, claiming that they indeed were the people of God as well, the Jewish population there, the synagogue of the Jews, didn't like that claim. They, these Christians, these Jews and Gentiles in one body in the church were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Jews didn't like it. And probably they were slandering and maligning them to the governing officials. That they're not part of us. And they won't bow the knee to Caesar they won't go along. And it led to the persecution of these Christians. And yet still, you've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. What could they expect? It seems to me that they could expect eternal life and vindication. Eternal life. Back there in verse 8. I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. For all of my Christian life, I have understood that in the Pauline kind of language, even the Lucan language. And it may well be that. An open door is an opportunity for ministry. It's an opportunity for evangelism, right? Paul would say, pray that God would give me an open door for the gospel. He talks in 2 Corinthians 2 about coming to Troas and and there being an open door for ministry. And it may well be that, but others believe that in context what Jesus is talking about here is an open door into his eternal kingdom. I've set before you an open door which no one can shut, not even those of the synagogue of Satan who are persecuting you and saying you do not belong to the people of God. Not even they can shut this door which I have opened. Scholars will point to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11, talking about the age to come. Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. And in Revelation chapter 21, we'll eventually get there. John picks up on this, talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. The new heavens and the new earth, he uses this kind of language. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So if that interpretation is true, what God is saying to this little group of faithful Christians, I have put before you an open door, access into my eternal kingdom that nobody is going to shut. And they can also expect not only eternal life, but vindication. Vindication means proof that someone or something is right, reasonable, or justified. Jesus says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Wow. These were ethnic Jews, but they had not come to trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And thus they were physically Jewish, ethnically Jewish. But Paul would say that that a true Jew is one who is one inwardly. Who has come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah who lived and died and rose for them. And they trust in him. And they become a part of the people of God. And that was extended not only to believing Jews but to the nations as well. The Gentiles like you and me. What's interesting is in Psalm 86 and in other passages in Isaiah, he would speak to the nation of Israel, the faithful nation, and it would predict a day when the Gentiles would come and bow down before Israel. And yet here Jesus somewhat flips that for these who say they are Jews and are not true inward Jews, that indeed they will be the ones who will bow down at the feet of Christians and they will know that Jesus has loved them. This little church with little power that had believed in Jesus and trusted in Jesus and clung to Jesus and kept his word one day they will be shown to be right and justified in their belief and in their obedience to Christ. That's coming. But until then, verse 10, because you have kept my word, the word of my perseverance, they persevered in trusting in Jesus, obeying Jesus, even when it's hard. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It's already 1138. It's getting real close to time to go. Some believe that this is a reference to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I grew up with that teaching, was schooled in that teaching, that, that the hour of testing that is coming upon the whole earth that Jesus is speaking here of the future seven-year tribulation period, and that when he says, I will keep you from that, it's a reference to Jesus taking his church away into heaven before the tribulation begins. It could be that. I'm reading a wonderful commentary, commentary by Bust Fanning. He's a New Testament scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary and he believes it to be that position i i don't anymore i believe as i've already said and will continue to say throughout this series that that the tribulation if you will be, began at the first coming of christ and will go until his entire and will go the entire way until his second coming it will certainly it seems to me increase in severity, the closer we get to the coming of Jesus. But I think when Jesus is speaking to this Philadelphian church, he's speaking about tribulation and hardship, which is about to come upon them, he's come upon the whole world it would be an increase in persecution and tribulation for the church there in Philadelphia, maybe also across the way in Rome, maybe down in Israel, all across the known world to them, increase in persecution, and that in the midst of that, Jesus will keep them from it. Not that he will remove them from it, but he will sustain them in it even if they lose their life in it. The greatest thing that you and I need, quite honestly, is not protection from coming persecution and martyrdom. What you and I need is faith to endure whatever comes our way. Y'all remember when I first learned that I had cancer, I learned I had a tumor on Wednesday. And on that Sunday, I stood before you all. And you remember, I asked for prayer. Certainly pray for my healing. But more than that, please pray for faith. For me, for Tara and the girls. I wanted to be delivered from cancer. And praise God, his purposes is for me. So far, so good. But more than that, I wanted to trust him through it, even if I got horrible news along the way. Hardship comes your way and mine, and maybe it's going to come more and more. What you and I need is to cling to Jesus in that and so to be kept from the hour of testing I think Schreiner is right it's to be preserved from committing apostasy as we continue to live in the world what is apostasy that would be you or me going through a hardship persecution tribulation for the sake of Christ not liking it so much that we turn our back on Jesus and say he's no longer worthy of me following him, trusting him, obeying him, worshiping him. I'm done with Jesus. That's the danger. In the hardships of life, to say God doesn't love me, he's not in control, why would he allow cancer into my life? I don't trust him anymore. I've served him for so many years and he would do this, I'm out. Or, to be following faithfully Following Jesus and your family members or your friends or your neighbors or the people you work with do not like Christ at all. And they malign you, they slander you, they say all kinds of evil about you because of Christ, and you say, I don't want that anymore. I don't, I'm not gonna follow Jesus anymore. He's not worthy of my worship. He's not worthy of me to be faithful to him. I'm out. For Jesus' children, he's saying, I'm going to hold you. Through the hardship that may come your way, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to keep you. Christ will hold me fast. You heard that song. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I think maybe there's a contrast here. You're a little, you're a little group. You're just a little Christian with little power, and yet I'm going to make you a strong pillar in the temple of my God, which as we get there in Revelation 21 and 22, the temple is apparently the whole universe in which God is going to dwell, including the new heavens and the new earth. You're going to be there. You're going to be a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. It's time to go. Whatever that is, that sounds really, really good. And now again, in all of these letters, Jesus promised to the overcomers, to those who who continue to trust him and hold fast to him, it's eternal life with him forever. Spiritually apathetic? Wake up. How? Remember what you received and heard. Ponder again and again the mercy of God through the gospel of Jesus and hold fast. We just hold fast. May God give us grace to hold fast until he comes. And indeed he says, I am coming Let's pray. Father in heaven, take your word, please, and bring forth much fruit in our lives. If, if any of my brothers and sisters here have found themselves a bit of sleepy, might your very word this day wake them up to the glory of of what they have heard and received, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may it so warm their hearts and kindle them afresh to live alive, passionate in their love for God, their love for the word of God, their love for the gospel, their love for people, their love for the lost. Oh Lord, do it with all of us. And then, Lord, help us to hold fast till till you come. Thank you that you've promised you'll never leave us, never forsake us. And as we continue to hold on to you, there is the promise of the crown, a promise that we will be a pillar in the coming kingdom of God, a promise that your name will be upon us. We belong to you. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.